Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explorer, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Elizabeth Norman. Our last few episodes have covered stories from the western side of the state. So in this episode, we're in eastern Connecticut. Our first story takes you for a ride on the airline trail in East Hampton and Colchester, and our second story to Old Lyme, where Carolyn Wakeman, the Florence Griswold Museum's archivist, has made a discovery. I was cruising along at a steady clip, no traffic to worry about, nature to the left and the right, but definitely looking forward to reaching the end of the trail when it occurred to me that this would make a great podcast. I was at about mile 20 of a 25-mile bike ride one recent August Saturday on the Airline State Park Trail in eastern Connecticut. Biking on the Airline Trail has been on my summer bucket list ever since we had a story about it in the summer 2008 issue of Connecticut Explored. It's a 50-mile rail trail stretching from East Hampton to Putnam. And the story of this trail, along with its natural beauty, puts it right up there with the Cape Cod Rail Trail and puts me in a mind to do more of the Farmington Canal Rail Trail, another trail with history. We started our ride at the East Hampton End, where there are a couple of options for places to park. We rode about eight miles before we decided to get off the trail and take a shortcut on Old Hartford Road to reach the iconic summer food shack Harry's in Colchester for a lunch break. That was a smart move in terms of miles. It shaved about five miles off the trip, but we paid for it. Get off the rail trail and you'll encounter hills. For the ride back, we hopped on the 3.3-mile Colchester Spur and rode the trail all the way back to East Hampton, a 15-mile return trip. You can find trail maps on the state's DEEP site. What you're riding on is the former rail bed of the Airline Railroad, which operated from the 1870s into the mid-20th century. Railroads were first built in Connecticut in the 1830s and had a huge impact on cities and towns, positively on those it passed through, like Bridgeport, which became a city as a result of the railroad, and negatively for those it passed by, like Litchfield. Litchfield was at the crossroads of major stagecoach lines and was literally a hub of activity in the period before railroads. But Litchfield's on a hill, and when the railroad went up the valley, Litchfield missed out. As the railroad expanded in Connecticut, the big goal was to build the shortest possible route from New York to Boston. The Airline Railroad was just such a plan, named for the imaginary line in the air that represented that direct route, practicalities aside. As built, it didn't quite go as the crow flies. The route used existing rail from New York to New Haven, then turned northeast. Construction began in the 1860s, and by 1870, the section from New Haven to Middletown was completed. And just three years later, the track was completed all the way to Wyndham, a slight delay to build a bridge over the Quinnebog River, and the route was in business. The section east of Middletown was especially challenging as you experience riding the trail today. The terrain is hilly, and laying the track to maintain grade required curves and cuts through the hillsides and bridging of valleys. Smaller valleys could be filled to grade, but two valleys required major feats of engineering. Over the distance of less than a mile and a half, two iron viaducts were constructed over Flatbrook in East Hampton and Dickinson Creek in Colchester. The Rapallo Viaduct over Flatbrook spanned 1,380 feet, and the Lyman Viaduct over Dickinson Creek spanned 1,112 feet. Not only the length is impressive, while the Rapallo Viaduct is 60 feet high, 
the Lyman Viaduct towered 137 feet in the air. Both viaducts were built of wrought iron. The Lyman Viaduct was built with five tiers of a new design of deck trusses called Phoenix Columns, hollow wrought iron arched segments that when joined together were supposed to be strong and flexible. When completed, the viaduct was such an impressive structure, it became a tourist attraction. People would make an outing of it, walking from the nearest train station to picnic and take in the view of it and from it. By 1885, the airline route had trimmed an hour off the six-hour coastal route between New York and Boston. The Pullman Company provided new luxury cars in 1891, and passenger as well as freight traffic boomed. But advances in technology after 1900, resulting in longer, heavier trains, taxed the limits of the airline's tracks. Today you can get the view from the Lyman Viaduct, but not of it. The two structures are still there, remarkably, but in 1912 and 1913 they were infilled with truckloads of sand and gravel, reportedly 20 acres worth. The increasing weight of freight trains after the turn of the century required them to be reinforced. What you can see is the view both across the valley and down 137 feet below. Stop for a moment and appreciate that climb you didn't have to make on your bike. Through passenger service ended in 1902, though local passenger and freight trains continued into mid-century. Major damage from the flood of 1955 and the advent of the interstate highway in the 1960s spelled the end of the airline railroad. The Airline State Park Trail was established in 1996. The southern portion of the trail is the most improved, and the trail is wide and flat with a mix of surfaces, including compacted earth and crushed rock, fine gravel, and stone dust, suitable for walking, horseback riding, and hybrid and mountain bikes. Watch for the occasional rock jutting out of the path, and check the DEEP website for descriptions of the northern part of the trail, which is still under development. For our story about the Lyman Viaduct, visit ctexplore.org and make your way to the summer 2008 issue on the back issues page. You'll find other fun summer destinations there too, and for a good read about the Farmington Canal, including links to those rail trail sites, visit the spring 2008 issue. You'll also want to check out our summer 2017 issue about Connecticut's food history with stories about oystering, beer and hops growing, New Haven pizza, and more. Our next story also appreciates the historic Connecticut landscape and takes us to the Florence Grizzle Museum in Old Lyme. Their summer 2017 exhibition on view through September 17, 2017 is Flora Fauna, The Natural Impulse in American Art. It features 101 works of art from the early 19th to the mid-20th century, much of it from the museum's collection. Some of the greatest hits include John James Audubon, the Hudson River School artists, and American Impressionists. Our story today focuses on Fidelia Bridges, a successful artist in her time, and Carolyn Wakeman's discovery about her connection to Old Lyme. I'm standing in the gallery with Carolyn. Hello. And Jenny Parsons, assistant curator at the Florence Griswold Museum and curator of the exhibition. Hello. 
We're standing in front of a, a work by Fidelia Bridges. In fact, we're standing in front of an entire wall of works by Fidelia Bridges. Uh, tell us, uh, why did you devote this, this much space to, to Bridges? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First, for Fidelia Bridges' importance in the history of American art and as a woman artist, but also because of the way our collection showcases her work and the number of works that we own by her. Um, This was really an ideal way to showcase both what we have and her relevance to this larger topic, her connection to natural history and her interest in naturalism. We have two works that came to us through the Hartford Steam Boiler Collection, which was a significant gift to the Florence Griswold Museum in 2002. And then the next year in 2003, there was another gift from the collection of George C. Lay, which was a portfolio of 68 of Fidelia Bridges' work. And George Lay is a connection to Old Lyme. Correct. Bridges was close friends with Oliver Ingraham Lay, who was a New York portraitist, but they had a family home in Old Lyme, and George C. Lay is the grandson of the portraitist Oliver Lay. We currently have two of her finished works. One is a finished watercolor called Wild Roses Among Rye. The other is a finished oil, which is a rarer area of her work. There are many fewer oils than there are watercolors. She was primarily known as a watercolorist. And then the portfolio is made up almost entirely of sketches and fragments, um, pieces of sketchbooks she would have taken out with her when she went out to study nature directly in the landscape botanical specimen studies she made um, from watercolor and different views, um, several studies of dead birds that she found during her walks. But displaying these two things together, works on the portfolio, the sketches, besides the finished works, really reveals a lot about process, which I think brings a lot to the exhibition because it's about the history of artists, naturalists, and how natural history informed the artist's work. So here we have lots of evidence of the artist really working, of going out, observing nature, walking through the hot sun, and the sketches that would have resulted from that were used back in the studio to create the finished works like the other two you see here. Describe this work we're standing in front of uh, Wild Roses Among Rye from 1874. This work was created by Bridges using watercolor and gouache over a pencil on heavy wove paper. It's about 13 by 9 inches in size, and it's a work that combines still life and landscape elements. It's set in a field of golden rye against a background of dusky blue, which is laid on smoothly with water so that we can't detect many brushstrokes. In the foreground, there's a green flowering rose bush that sprouts up from the left. One of those branches creates a kind of dramatic arc that reaches across the painting. And at the end of that branch perches a sparrow. And the sparrow turns to tweet and to sing to its companion, which is sitting on a branch below. The bird at the top is the one that probably grabs the viewer's eye first, and then it leads our eye around the picture, moving from various branches and to each of the soft pink flowers, just as a bird would flutter and swoop about in the field. And many of her works, especially her later works, didn't have a lot of detail in the background. I've heard her paintings referred to as foreground watercolors. Well, I think it has to do with her interest in um, studying botanical specimens directly, that she wanted to get the amount of detail that would cause her to turn towards still life painting more than landscape. She's really isolating here, something that she's found special in nature. 
Sedalia Bridges has a fascinating life story. She was born in Salem, Massachusetts in 1834. Her father was a ship captain in the China trade, trading in tea, silk, and Chinese porcelain. That meant he was away for long periods of time, years. But when he came home, he had tales to tell and exotic gifts from across the globe. Vidalia had two older sisters, Eliza and Elizabeth, and a younger brother, Henry. When she was 15, her mother died, and astonishingly, within hours, they received word that their father was dead, too, in China, three months before. Their parents' death left the four siblings not only orphaned, but needing to fend for themselves. Though they'd led a comfortable life, their father's debts meant they had to sell their home and find work. The siblings moved to Brooklyn, where her sister opened a school. Fidelia became a live-in mother's helper to a local family, a former ship owner from Salem, now a prosperous produce merchant. Her oldest sister died in 1856, and the school was abandoned. And through the patronage of the family she worked for, Fidelia attended Cooper Union and from 1860 to 1863, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia. She became a student and a protege of artist William Trost Richards. In 1865, she met painter Oliver Lay, who both painted her portrait and was her introduction to Old Lyme. After the Civil War, in 1867, she traveled for a year in Europe and studied in Rome and returned to Brooklyn and opened an art studio with two friends in the top floor of her patron's home. She worked steadily and sold her work. She also worked as a designer for greeting card publisher Louis Prang, sometimes called the father of the American Christmas card. She was elected to the prestigious National Academy of Design in 1873 and the American Watercolor Society in 1875. The Watercolor Society would, a decade later, close its ranks to women. Both memberships are an indication of how successful she was as they were both an endorsement and a means of access to art collectors. And where would you place her in the context of other artists working at this same time and the styles of art that were emerging? I mean, Impressionism was emerging in France just at the same time her career was was taking off, and that was considered quite radical. It also seems that she was influenced by the concurrent craze for Japanese art and design. Well, the 1870s, there was really a confluence of a lot of things. It was in the 1860s, the decade before this work was made, when women were able to enter art academies for the first time in larger numbers and were able to have instruction, so there were more opportunities for women. Then also in the 1870s was a flourishing of the medium of watercolor, especially in America. It had been popular for a long time, but not always valued as an artistic medium. And watercolor was especially accessible and uh, popular among women artists. Um, They had been taught in schools watercolor for a long time. It was often thought of uh, as an amateur hobby. And then with the founding of the American Watercolor Society in 1866, these kinds of works were now gaining um, official recognition. And Bridges was someone who showed with the Watercolor Society beginning in 1871 and later became a member. So she was quite important. There were other women artists doing similar work, but she came became very well known for her uh, works of flower and botanical studies and then was 
also notable for her commercial work. So one of the few women artists who were able to find success in publishing in Scribner's Monthly, and then was she was hired by Louis Prang to create things like greeting cards, calendars. And so her work was well known, um, not only in the academies, but um, through more broadly to the mass public. In 1976, she was invited to exhibit at the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition. And it's in these years, from 1871 to 1878 or so, that she spent summers in Stratford and elsewhere, and at least three of them, Carolyn discovered painting in Old Lyme. Carolyn, do we know if this work, Wild Roses Among the Rye, from 1874, was painted here in Old Lyme? We don't know for sure, but I think we can make an educated guess that it was. Um, We know that Fidelia Bridges painted in Old Lyme both in the summer of 1873 and 1874. It's very likely that it was work from that period, studies that she made in the field during her weeks and months, summer months in Old Lyme, that she took back to her studio and then uh, developed into the more completed work that you see here. Uh, So I think the date suggests strongly that this painting was done in Old Lyme, but also it's a very typical picture of grasses and plants and birds that you see in Laysville, the section of Old Lyme in which she lived. In fact, these wild roses that blossom and bloom, that it blossom in June, these are all over Laysville and, of course, other parts of Connecticut, but it just seems as if the convergence of the subject matter and the date that she gives us for the painting makes it very likely that it was, that it was done here. And that's one of the challenges, I understand, is she rarely titled her works with a specific location. So would you say that specific location was not one of her objective as an artist? Yes, I I think that's right. Uh, She gives her her paintings titles, specific, quite specific titles sometimes, but she very rarely identifies the place or the date. So when we put together, try to put together a chronology of her work and try to locate her paintings back into the setting in which they were produced, it's quite difficult. I think she's making a statement about her response to the delicacy, the immediacy, the gracefulness of nature that that she could see anywhere. And these are ordinary plants. She very often picks ordinary wayside plants and flowers and birds. The English sparrow that we're talking about is not a glamorous bird. It's not a particularly beautiful bird, but it's a very common one. And she makes this combination of wild roses, wild grasses, and, um, and English sparrows into this beautiful work of art. But it could be located anywhere. It was Bridges' fidelity to nature and her relationship with other like-minded artists who followed the principles of John Ruskin that led her to be categorized as an American pre-Raphaelite artist. Ruskin was a highly influential voice in the art world. He published widely on a variety of topics, but most notable for American artists like Bridges was his call to create art by working directly from nature, by observing it outdoors in its natural setting firsthand. So Bridges um, most likely read um, one of his publications, Modern Painters, which was published in two volumes in the 1840s. And then he also uh, wrote something called Elements of Drawing in 1857, which was very popular with American artists. And then also her close friendship with the artist William Trost Richards, who she met 
1860 in Philadelphia, where he was teaching at the Pennsylvania Academy. Um, Bridges left Brooklyn to go to Philadelphia, and she took Richard's classes. And he was also called an American pre-Raphaelite artist for many of the same reasons. And he was elected a member of the Association for the Advancement of Truth and Art, which was the organization founded for Ruskin's followers. Um, There was a publication called The New Path, which espoused many of these writings. Carolyn, tell us how Bridges came to Old Lyme. In 1872, um, Bridges' friend Oliver Lay, the portraitist uh, that we've mentioned before, painted his first portrait of Fidelia Bridges in his Brooklyn studio. And uh, Oliver Lay came to Old Lyme uh, every summer because every summer of my boyhood is what he's written. He spent in Old Lyme because his family had settled here very early. It wasn't just one family home that he came back to, but the town was really his family home. And his uh, the first uh, member of the Lay family settled here on the east side of the Connecticut River in the 1650s. So that's very early indeed. Uh, and the family remained substantial landowners in the town. And the area that um, Oliver Lay returned to is called even today Laysville, named after his family. So uh, while he was painting the portrait of Fidelia Bridges in his studio, he certainly would have talked to her about his family home, about the sketching that he had done the summer before and that he expected to continue doing that summer. At any rate, uh, after he finished that painting in 1872, the next summer, 1873, Fidelia went to Old Lyme with Oliver Lay. How did you discover this? I discovered the connection quite a few years ago when I was working on uh, an American woman writer named Martha J. Lamb, who was best known because she was the editor of a magazine called Journal of American History. And Martha Lamb came to Old Lyme in 1874 and wrote a big profile, long profile of the town. And I was interested in her work and her experience here. And so I read her correspondence and found at the New York Public Library. And I found a letter from an old Lyme, local Old Lyme artist named Ellen Noyes Chadwick. And Ellen wrote to Martha Lamb saying there are many artists from New York who are visiting Old Lyme these days. And she listed Fidelia Bridges uh, among them. That was that letter was in 1874, written in 1874, and uh, and Mrs. Chadwick stated that Fidelia Bridges had also been here the previous summer. So I took that detail away in my head because I had always loved Fidelia Bridges' work and thought someday I would try to follow that up. So did this exhibition, Flora Fauna, get you thinking about that again? It certainly did. And every um, one of the things that I do is to write something called an exhibition note for each of the exhibitions that the Florence Grizzle Museum uh, mounts, which is for a year. And so I'm always thinking about, let's see, how can I link art with local history for this exhibition? And the the, uh, mention of Fidelia Bridges just popped back into my mind. And what intrigued me was that the story, or the history that you read about Fidelia Bridges sort of credits her with introducing Lay to Old Lyme, and you find that that, in fact, is the opposite. Yes, I'm quite sure it's the opposite. If a story has become the traditional way of interpreting or describing Fidelia Bridges' life, but I think many parts of it are inaccurate. And the person or people who wrote those initial biographical versions of her story had never read her letters or Oliver Lay's letters or the newspapers, the New Haven Register, that notes when Fidelia Bridges is in Old Lyme visiting. So I just thought that there was a lot of material here that hadn't been discovered. Most 
most writers about Fidelia Bridges say that she spent the seven summers of the mid-1870s in Stratford, Connecticut, and that she, Fidelia, introduced her friend Oliver Lay to the pleasures of Connecticut. But of course, I knew that that wasn't correct, and I thought it would be useful to write an article explaining why. And what is the connection to, to Stratford? Was there much there, or is it, did that somehow just get inflated? Well, I think it got inflated because I, I think nobody knew where she really was. She was somewhere painting uh, river banks and, and meadows and lake shores and birds and things that could have been uh, uh, seen and observed anywhere along the Connecticut shore. But it's interesting also that I'm pretty sure that Fidelia Bridges first went to Stratford, apparently in 1871, also because of a connection with Oliver Lay, because Oliver Lay's mother came from Stratford and her family had a large estate in Stratford. And I'm pretty certain that there was no other reason why Fidelia Bridges from Manhattan and from um, Salem, Massachusetts, would have selected Stratford. So her relationship with Oliver Lay was very, very close. Uh, Fidelia was 11 years older, and um, uh, Marion Waite Lay, Oliver's wife, uh, seems to have been a friend of Fidelia's also. But there's so such a close connection between Lay and Bridges, and they both went to Stratford, and it seems to me most likely that that Bridges discovered Stratford because of Lay's mother's property there. And, and then there are a couple, because we're both historians, interesting connections to, to Connecticut. Yes. Uh, one that uh, she subbed in as a, as a governess for a year for Mark Twain. What, what do we know about that? That's interesting. She intended that position always uh, to be temporary. And it occurred because uh, her sister Elizabeth, her older sister, with whom she was very close and with whom she had shared an apartment both in Brooklyn and later in Manhattan and also in Stratford and in Old Lyme when she rented houses there, Elizabeth had a stroke in 1882, and Fidelia nursed her through that illness. She explains her feelings in her letters. She took um, the death of her sister Lizzie very, very much to heart, and she was terribly grief-stricken. And she writes in one of her letters that she just couldn't continue painting, and she was going to do something different, and she wanted a different setting in which to be. She just didn't want to be in Stratford at that time. So Mark Twain had apparently purchased one of her works in 1875 and um, had gotten to know her. I'm not sure. I haven't researched that, so I'm not sure of uh, how, how, through what channels Fidelio Bridges became familiar with Mark Twain. But in any rate, he did uh, invite her to take care of his three children, and she did that for a period of months. Her letters are at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and we have uh, photocopies of the letters here in the Florence Griswold Museum and uh, in the archives. And because I was writing an article for the history blog, the museum's history blog, I'm using the materials that are available in the archives here in Old Lyme. And I haven't yet been to Washington, to the Smithsonian, to check the originals, but I fully intend to do that. The Clemenses were living in Hartford. That was the year Twain's memoir, Life on the Mississippi, came out, and he was working on The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which was published the following year. Susie was 11, Clara was 9, and Jean was 3 years old. The chronology is a little unclear, but in 1890, she may have moved to Stratford. It's interesting that the uh, Lay family remained very close to Fidelia Bridges after the death of Oliver Lay in 1890. He died in Stratford after having a severe case of tuberculosis. Uh, Fidelia was grief-stricken when he died as well and wrote some very poignant letters to him during his illness. But after his death, she remained very close to his second son, Charles Downing Lay. She gave to Charles Downing Lay 
a large number of her own works, which is how those paintings that Jenny mentioned earlier have ended up at the Florence Quizzle Museum and also at the Smithsonian Museum of Art in Washington, D.C. So they passed from Oliver Lay and from Fidelia Bridges to Charles Downing Lay and from him to his son, George Lay, and then from George Lay to the museum and to the Smithsonian. So tell our listeners a little bit more about the uh, exhibition in general and and how Fidelia Bridges uh, fits into that. This work was a natural choice for the exhibition, if you don't mind my pun, for the way it exemplifies Fidelia Bridges' talent for combining elements she observed in nature and arranging them in compositions that are both aesthetically appealing while also retaining a near scientific accuracy. So this exhibition surveys the history of artists, naturalists, and environmentally conscious artists in America. When visitors enter our gallery, they'll first encounter a tall mahogany chest containing the natural history collection of the American Impressionist Willard Metcalf, an artist who came to Old Lyme both to paint and build his collection of scientific specimens, including hundreds of bird eggs, nests, butterflies, and moths. Each section of the exhibition reveals other highlights of this tradition, from some of the first pioneering artist naturalists in Philadelphia in the early 1800s, to the Hudson River School artists who painted the untouched landscape as a means of codifying American identity distinct from Europe, and then to this gallery where we find Fidelia Bridges in a section devoted to the American Pre-Raphaelites and beyond. She isn't a well-known artist today. Many other artists, even women artists of that era, much better known. Do you have a theory about why? It's hard to know exactly why. One reason may be because of her specialization in watercolor. It hasn't been um, until very recently when some notable scholars have been doing big shows about about American watercolor. Um, It's been known as a lesser medium, like other artists who were working in oils. Their works were circulated more broadly. Artists like Mary Cassatt, which was of a similar generation and traveled more widely, um, you know, some of her works entered larger collections more readily than Fidelia Bridges. But I think there is a resurgence of interest in her work, and especially in the direction that American art scholarship is going now, there many art historians are turning to look at women and artists of other race. And so I think it's, it's really an opportune moment um, for her to get more attention. Bridges lived out her last years in another Connecticut town, Canaan, where she moved in 1892. Frederick Scharf describes her later years in Notable American Women this way. She rented a small house on a hillside overlooking a mill stream. She soon became a familiar village figure, tall, elegant, beautiful even in her 60s, her hair swept back, her attire always formal, even when sketching in the fields or riding her bicycle through town. Her life was quiet and unostentatious, her friends unmarried ladies of refinement and of literary and artistic taste, whom she joined for woodland picnics and afternoon teas. After the turn of the century, her artistic productivity steadily decreased, though she continued to travel to England to visit her brother and New York to keep in touch with the artistic world. She died in 1923, just shy of her 89th birthday, and is buried there, having seen the dawn of modernism in the art world. But at least three Connecticut locations, Stratford, Canaan, and Old Lyme, have provided inspiration and fueled the artistic career of a successful artist of the Gilded Age. 
Well, thank you both for talking with me today about Fidelia Bridges. Like Carolyn, we love a good history mystery, uh, as we like to call them, and love that she has tracked down this connection between Fidelia Bridges and uh, Old Lyme. And uh, we encourage, of course, everyone to come and visit the exhibition. Thank you. Thank you very much. To see Bridges' work, visit Flora slash Fauna, The Naturalist Impulse in American Art at the Florence Grizzled Museum in Old Lyme, on view through September 17, 2017. And to read Carolyn's blog post about her discoveries, and to see images of Fidelia Bridges and her work, visit florencegriswoldmuseum.org slash collections slash history hyphen blog. Thanks for listening. We thank Carolyn Wakeman, Jenny Parsons, and the Florence Grizzle Museum. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman. And for more great stories of Connecticut history, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. The fall 2017 issue is all about breakthroughs, from Connecticut's role in the development of the Muppets to 100 years in the freedom struggle to fighting for reproductive rights. We've got more inspiring stories for you at ctexplored.org. If you're new to grading the nutmeg, listen to episodes 34 and 35 for stories about historic places that have inspired new historical fiction, episodes 33 and 28 for stories about the 100th anniversary of World War I, and episode 32 about the history of beer and hops growing in Connecticut. We've got something for everyone at Grading the Nutmeg.